0: behind the knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. As a surgical resident, you are dedicated to mastering your craft. Logging cases shouldn't slow you down. Introducing Unera. Streamlined, intuitive, and efficient. With a quick 20-second process, Effortlessly log cases and utilize advanced AI for precise CPT code suggestions. Unera's sophisticated interface also ensures ACGME requirements are always at your fingertips. Unera is developed exclusively for residents and is completely free of charge. Elevate your case logs. Download Unera today. That's U-N-I-R-A, Unera. Welcome back to
1: Behind the Knife. This is Dan Shees, one of the Behind the Knife Surgery Education Fellows. To continue with the innovation series, I'm very excited to sit down today with Dr. Jeffrey Ponsky to discuss the percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy tube, also known as the PEG tube. Dr. Ponsky completed his surgical training at the University Hospitals of Cleveland in 1976. In 1979, he became the director of the Department of Surgery at the Mount Sinai Medical Center in Cleveland, where he remained through 1997. In 1997, Dr. Ponsky joined the Cleveland Clinic as the director of endoscopic surgery and executive director of the minimally invasive surgery center. In 2005, he assumed the Oliver H. Payne Professorship and chair of the Department of Surgery at Case Western University School of Medicine. He returned to the Cleveland Clinic as director of developmental endoscopy in 2014. Dr. Ponsky has served as president of many organizations, including the Society of American Gastrointestinal Endoscopic Surgeons and the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy. Additionally, Dr. Ponsky has received numerous awards and has published over 300 original articles and book chapters. Welcome, Dr. Ponsky, to Behind the Knife. Thank you. So we're just going to jump right in here. Can you share the story of how the idea of the PEG tube came about when prior to this innovation, all gastrostomy tubes required a laparotomy for placement?
2: Oh, so you have to look at what was going on in the time. Uh, this was the uh, late 70s. I had been doing endoscopy since about 1974. Uh, I started doing endoscopy when I was where you are. I was a surgical resident doing an elective and thought it would be an interesting area to do, uh, learn. I was told I couldn't do it because I was a surgical resident and that piqued my interest, and I was able to obtain training, and uh, I came back after that training and uh, was told I couldn't do endoscopy because I was a surgeon, couldn't touch the instruments, and so I bought my own instrument with the help of my mother-in-law, who actually purchased the scope for me, and I started doing endoscopy. I was still a resident, and, uh, and I had an attending always signing the papers and standing behind me and there were no pediatric gastroenterologists in those days, and I was asked, because I was friends with the chief of pediatric surgery named Bob Eisen, who was at University Hospitals, he was uh, intrigued by endoscopy, and I was scoping a lot of children, young adults, and very new neonates, uh, who had GI problems, and no one else was there to do it. I had my own scope, and I uh, I did endoscopy on them. Uh, so this occurred, and I joined the staff in 1976 at University Hospitals as the head of surgical endoscopy there, as it was. I was Lord of the Flies. There was nobody else uh, doing surgical endoscopy. And uh, I was doing the pediatric endoscopy. We just hired a new pediatric surgeon then named Michael Gauderer, and uh, Michael would uh, offer me his patients to do endoscopy in and and, uh, take a look and see what was going on. And he would stand in the room, the room was dark, and we would both notice that, first of all, the room was dark and the room would light up because the babies were so thin. These were tiny neonates and the light would shine through their abdomen. Michael would push on the light with his finger and I'd be scoping and I would see an indentation And we realized, we got together and said, you know, maybe we could do something with this. Maybe we could figure out a way to poke a tube through that domino wall and and make a feeding gastrostomy. Michael had been working in his brain trying to figure out how to do a minimally invasive gastrostomy for quite a while, but really hadn't put it together with endoscopy. And the two of us together came up with a technique and we put some we took some gastrostomy tubes from the OR, which were little tiny ones we use in the baby, and we took an IV catheter at that time called a MediCut. We put some sutures through the uh, uh, the uh, end of the gastrostomy tube, and, uh, and uh, it was a De pesar catheter, and push it put it through the uh, IV tubing, and, and that made a dilator end, and uh, we we figured it out, and we went to the to the OR right away. And we talked to the patients' mothers. These babies, all of them, were essentially uh, brain dead. They had severe psychomotor retardation. They were all being fed by nasogastric tubes. They had no chance of recovery, and they were had uh, you know total uh, inability to eat. And they were being sent for uh, operative gastrostomy prior prior to going to. A long-term nursing facility. Very sad situation. So we said to the mom, look, we have to do a major laparotomy on these babies, uh, but we have an idea for performing this uh, by a new technique. We don't have any idea if it'll work. We think it will. It's pretty simple. But if it doesn't, we will do the laparotomy right there and then and complete the gastrostomy. And they said, fine, go ahead. That was the informed consent at that time. And Uh, We did this. This was 1979, about May or so, and it it worked very easily. Within a few minutes, we were able to accomplish placing this tube, and we then subsequently did five of these in infants, and then I moved across the street to the Mount Sinai Medical Center literally a month later and started doing them in stroke patients, adults, with the same neurologic outlook, but adult patients who needed feeding. And would have needed an open gastrostomy. It was very successful, and then, ironically, we went to the laboratory and started looking at uh, what this meant in terms of tract formation, how long the tube had to be in before you could change it, and was there any chance of leakage or this and that? Some of my some people who are extremely prominent now in in surgical circles, uh, uh, like John Mellinger, uh, who works at the Board of Surgery. He did some of the original research on what this tract formation was like, and uh, it was sort of the reverse of what you would do now by going to the laboratory first and then, and then to the operating room. Ironically, though, it was just what we would call today innovative therapy. Uh, it's not unusual when doing a uh, case to put in some sutures or do a flap that you think is innovative or new, but to what we do know. That if you're going to continue to do it and study it today, you have to get an IRB and you have to do very good informed consent. Uh, We did the best we could in terms of informed consent. We didn't have IRBs in those days. Uh, So we started doing them. And uh, we made modifications in the tube. We realized that uh, some patients were allergic to rubber. We started uh, working with industry. We literally begged. Many companies to make this tube for us because when we presented it, the uh, there was great excitement in the endoscopy and surgery world. But uh, no company would make it; they thought nobody would use it. And so we begged uh, many companies to take it, please, just take it and make it. And they wouldn't do it. I found this little company in Mentor, Ohio. In uh, I guess it was Mentor, Ohio at that time. And they started making the tube for us just as we made it, exactly as we made it. And uh, we never even thought about patenting the tube. It wasn't even on our mind. And uh, today my wife says, why didn't you patent the tube? <laughs> but we didn't even think about it. It wasn't in our mind. We wanted to get papers out of it, but we wanted to make a contribution to the literature. We were more interested in publication than patents. And we were interested in getting the technique out there. And it caught fire. It was very successful. We learned like everything else, there was a price to pay. When you did a procedure, there were complications that occur. If, uh, if you weren't careful about where you put the tube, it could go through the colon on the way to the stomach. Um, that happened rarely, but it did happen, still happens today in, in rare cases. Uh, bleeding wasn't a major problem, but infection was a big problem around where the tube exited the skin. And so uh, this was studied by a number of uh, centers in the Mayo Clinic, actually. A fellow named Larson uh, did a study where he saw that if a patient was anti- on any antibiotic uh, beforehand or a single dose of an antibiotic beforehand, almost eliminated infections around the tube. So a perioperative dose of, a, of, an, inf- of an antibiotic became standard with this. Um, and the tubes became silicon in one piece instead of multiple pieces, and this evolved. But actually, after the last, after the first few years, I would say there's been very few modifications of the tube. Uh, in fact, uh, it's become sort of a commodity type thing. It goes to the hospitals, buy the lowest price tube they can get, because they're all pretty much the same. And uh, the technique has remained uh, with a few modifications. Uh, very much the same as it was in
1: the beginning. How involved were you with this uh, small company when they initially kind of took up your idea and made, maybe made some small modifications?
2: Very involved. We were hand in glove all the time. And we worked in the laboratory and we did a ton of animal experiments to see how much pressure was required to remove the tube, if the tip would stay on, what the best tube size was. We did, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of animals uh, and recorded the data uh, in a careful way uh, to go to the FDA and get uh, approval from the FDA to use this tube. So we were very careful, we worked closely together. You know, endoscopy at that time, if I can just intervene here, it was a new new area. Uh, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit. And surgeons had different perspectives than gastroenterologists. Well, gastroenterologists were very interested in the mucosal disease that they observed, and I was. I said, wow, look at this. What else can we do with this thing? And so the PEG tube and was and still is the only time any instrument or needle was thrust through the abdominal wall into the GI tract. That was pretty remarkable to, the, to be able to thrust something through the skin percutaneously into the GI tract and leave it there. I mean, uh, percutaneous procedures were starting then. We were doing percutaneous uh, radiology and stuff like that, but nothing was thrust into the GI tract. And this was the first time it was ever done. We sort of stood back. Also, a surgical perspective, something I had done at that time was uh, when we were doing colonoscopy and seeing polyps at that time, this was 1975, we said, well, what if you take these polyps out and they're cancer? How are we going to know where they were? So the surgeon can take out that part of the colon. Well, I had been reading papers about Basil Morrison in England who was tattooing on the inside of the colon polyps with India ink, and that would stay there. And he could come back and watch the polyp grow. So I said, what if we inject a little bit of black dye alongside the, where we took out the polyp and maybe it would stay there and we'd be able to see the stain on the serosa. And we did that. We published it in 75, Endoscopic Tattooing. And it actually still is still used today because you can see where the polyp was. So there was a lot of low-hanging fruit then. We could do things that seemed logical. And that's the fun of a new area to just sort of stand back and look at your problems and say, what are our problems? How can we fix this? And what are some tools that we have to make it better, to make it easier? And everybody thinks that everybody's been everything's been discovered already. That's not true. Same thing happened with Lapcoli when we started that. We had a lot of fun coming up with new inventions and stuff like that.
0: Now, a word from our sponsor, Unero. Residency is busy, insanely busy. There are so many tasks vying for your time. For me, one of the most painful was logging cases.
2: I, for one, always wish for an app designed with residents in mind to make tracking my milestones easier. Unera
1: is just that, the best app for case logging.
0: Think about it. Why should it take 90 seconds to log a case? With Unera, you can do it in less than 20. That's more time for patients, and more time for learning.
2: And finding the right CPT code, Unera's AI-powered search function does the legwork. No more second guessing and no more time wasted endlessly scrolling through options.
0: Yeah, and Unera also syncs seamlessly with ACGME. No need to duplicate efforts.
2: Plus, with Unera, staying on top of ACGME requirements is no longer a challenge. Unera's sleek interface keeps tracking your progress in real time.
0: Best of all, Unera is free for residents to download and use. If you're a resident and want to streamline your case logging, visit unera.io. That's unira.io. That's unir dot Or download the Unira app. What
1: got you into endoscopy as a general surgery resident where you said at that time the, the surgeons really weren't involved in endoscopy? So you
2: want to know the truth? The truth is that when I was a resident, everybody says when I was a resident, we were on 36 hours and off 12 all year for five years. That was, we were every other night on call. It was pretty rough and we had elective time. And I said, boy, I'm beat. I want to have an elective that's a little bit easier. And I looked over in the corner and saw a bunch of gastroenterologists really all gathered around, you know, like a powwow around the endoscope in the ICU trying to see what they were looking at. And I said, wow, that would be a great way to blow off three months. I won't have to take night off. This will be easier. That was an accident, okay? Well, then I was told I wasn't allowed to do it. The week before I was going to show up to do it, the chief of gastroenterologist said, we're not going to train a surgeon to do this. It's ours. And that was provoking to me. So I did find someone to train me and came back and was able to... Uh, do it. I was, he would, he said, you're not allowed to do it. But then my chairman said, if you can get a scope, which I did, uh, you can do it. So endoscopy wasn't something I dreamed about or loved, about. it was some opportunity that I saw. And once I started to do it, I realized the potential of it. There are many things today, and I see surgeons today, for example, who do ultrasound. And some of them, for example, are in thyroid surgery or endocrine surgery. And they are leaders in ultrasound because they saw the value of ultrasound in endocrine surgery. Other people just didn't pick it up. So I think that uh, when you see a new technology, whatever that technology is, investigate it. See if it's something that offers you something that you can uh, make it your own and become an expert
1: in it. Were the scopes that you were using... At this time, similar to the scopes we use now, what, what company did you buy your scope from?
2: Well, this, the scopes may have looked the same if you stand six feet away, but they're markedly different. In those days, the uh, predominant scope was made, there were two companies. One was uh, called ACMI. It was an American company, American System Scope Makers Incorporated, ACMI. And uh, it was an interesting scope. It had a joystick that you turned. turn to try to make uh, the tip turn, and they were about a centimeter in diameter, and uh, you could barely see through it. I mean, it was like looking through ground glass. The Japanese had made a scope of several companies, Mishida and Olympus, but in the United States, it was Olympus, and that was the one that I was lucky to be trained on, and I bought, and it was crystal clear. It was like you were just right there, and so I bought that scope, and that was another advantage I have. I bought the best instrument and uh the scopes were fiber optic then in other words you look through the scope itself you put your eye to the lens and you uh the the image was carried the light was carried by fiber bundles into the lumen of the stomach and the image came back to your eye there was no way to take a photograph except to clip a camera where your eye had been and there were little tiny photographs that went on film strips uh and there nobody, we had to make up a little teaching attachment that clipped to the scope. And you look through that and you had a little uh, wire that went out and your, uh, your uh, trainee looked through that. It was dark. And then magically in, in about 1980, they came up with a fiber, with a uh, video camera, chip camera, a, a new technology placed at the tip of the scope instead of the optic that came back, and suddenly it was on a big monitor that you could see, and that's the kind of scope we use today.
1: Were you using the same scope then for the pediatric patients as you were the adults? Yep. In those days, I was. And the pediatric
2: baby could take a scope that was about 9 millimeters wide. It was about the limit that we could use, but we did use it carefully, and it worked. Then very shortly after that, the scopes reduced in size, both the adult and then they developed
1: pediatric scopes. But the it PEG was done with an adult scope. And since this was your scope, uh, were you in charge of cleaning this after every every procedure? I did indeed. I
2: would almost not let anyone touch it except me. And it's a good story because they would give me a nurse in the operating room, but they had this guy... He's doing this wacko procedure. I will give him a nurse because he's required to have one by, you know, a circulating nurse, but he doesn't really need a top-notch scrub nurse for this. So they gave me a nurse who was a young girl who had a trouble with her vision, and she wore uh, eyeglasses that were like Coke bottles, you know, real thick, and she could barely see. But one day I came to work, and everything was laid out perfectly on the table that I would need for my procedure. And it was every day was perfectly laid out, and so I said I can trust this person, and she will be able to clean my scope. And how did we clean the scope? In those days, all we did is was wash it with green soap in between procedures. We didn't know about high level of steril uh, disinfection or sterilization then. And this young lady went on to become a national leader in nurse endoscopy circles. The SGNA, she was a national leader because of her involvement in endoscopy and surgery.
1: That's incredible. To further get into it, when you when you approached the FDA um, with this idea, how did the whole process go with you had already, you know, implanted this into some patients and all that? Was there any resistance or any trouble with that? I wasn't
2: directly involved. I wrote some of the protocols, but I can tell you that there's a difference between um, a new product for the first time with never been used before. And this was sort of uh, a 510K, something that a tube that had already been used for a similar purpose. And so the first tubes were given 510K approval, which is much easier to do. You show that the tube has been used for a similar purpose before. What was different, of course, was that the way we inserted the tube was different. And uh, uh, I think, you know, we've we've used the same tube in uh, to uh, straighten the stomach when it gets twisted for not just for feeding. Uh, Then after we developed the procedure, the indications for the procedure, which was originally feeding, expanded markedly. And so the initial indication, which was for feeding, was expanded to decompression of a gastric stomach, of a stomach that was a gastroparesis or or blocked for some reason in a patient with carcinomatosis. We used it to deliver unpalatable feedings. We used it when the stomach was twisted. Uh, we used it the, the, for many things, and then we figured out that we could put it into the colon as well uh, for uh, seagull a valvulus to fix it or for uh, Ogilvy syndrome uh, for decompression. And we've used it multiple pegs in the sigmoid colon for sigmoid valvulus. So uh, the indications are, you know, you have to keep using your mind and thinking about, wow, could, what, what could we do to use this uh, trick that we have? And so uh, I like to think that the endoscope is a tube. Uh, it's a It's a, a vehicle that gets us to where we need to be to perform an operation. That's what we think of as surgeons. Uh, the mucosa is fine, we look at it, we're interested in it, we can treat it, but at the same time, the endoscope gets us as surgeons to a place we need to be to do surgery. And so the gastrostomy was something we had been doing. And uh, so many of the operations, like polypectomy, and like the esophageal varices and other things that have been developed by surgeons, uh, endoscopic procedures were merely extensions of surgical operations that we already did. And that's what PEG was.
1: Now, I'm sure when you re- kind of released this idea to other surgeons that there was a lot of excitement, uh, did you meet any resistance among surgeons and what... What were some of the, what was some of the pushback that you've got?
2: So the first time I presented this was at a gastrointestinal meeting in 1980 in Salt Lake City, Utah. There were about 1,500 people in the plenary session when I presented it. And when I took questions from the audience, only two people got up. The first was a surgeon, prominent surgeon from Mass General, who stood up and he was a friend of mine. He said, Jeff, I have to tell you, this is a very cool technique. He said, but I can do a laparoscopic, I mean, it wasn't laparoscopic then. He said, I can do a laparotomy and a gastrostomy in a half an hour, and it's not a big deal. I said, that's absolutely true. Thank you. The next person who got up was a very distinguished gastroenterologist who was very well known in the world for doing ERCP. He was a leader in the world. And he said, I only have one thing to say to you. I wish I had thought of it. And what happened was that the gastroenterologists caught this first. They said this was a therapeutic procedure which they could easily accomplish, and they were very happy to have it, and my speaking career was on fire. And I went all over the country and world, indeed, talking about how to do the procedure, the results of the procedure, and how we might expand it. And the surgeons then caught sight of this and they weren't as doing endoscopy in as large a numbers then and they started to do it as well and the surgeons didn't really give any resistance to it but they were a little bit unfamiliar with it because they weren't doing as much endoscopy at that point
1: then then it's it's just taken off now and now i mean any surgical trainee any any medical trainee at this point you know has has seen seen this Innovation used, and and it truly has really just changed the the field of surgery. So um, it
2: has, but let me just caution you. Uh, people say, "Well, this is the standard of care now. There's nothing else. This is so easy. It takes how long does it take? It takes under five minutes if you know how to do it right and carefully. Literally under five minutes. And what else could you do? But you still require the patient to have some sedation or anesthesia." and it still requires an intervention. Let me tell you, I want you to use your imagination that someday you will place a patient on a table and have a machine that uses ultrasound or something and has a gun that goes in and goes boom and places that right into the stomach without anything, except maybe a little local. And so the world of imagination and innovation does not end because you have a good procedure you may develop a new technology which can do it the, the, the same thing in another way. And so uh, don't stop dreaming and stop thinking. Uh, the gastrostomy is, is there. It, it's puncturing a bubble, the stomach, and we have a good way to do it now. But there are other, it's been done radio, radiologically. I don't like the tube that they use, but they do use ultrasound. They're very successful. Uh, and, uh, but I think that new technologies will come along that combine maybe ultrasound and, and surgical techniques. So, uh, keep, keep imagining.
1: So, to further expand on that, if, uh, if a new surgical trainee approached you with an idea for a surgical invention that they were very passionate about, what advice would you have for them?
2: Well, I think that, uh, Today, what I would say to them, and they do approach me all the time, is let's draw it out. Draw it out. Don't just talk about it. Draw it out and write up your idea. Put it on paper. Okay? And then I would like to go to the laboratory and try it in an animal model. And it doesn't have to be a living animal. We can try an explant, for example. But... Um, there, there if, if it's a procedure, you can do that. If it's a if it's a uh, instrument, then you have to make prototypes and and things like that. And then you talk about patent protection and and you know seeing somebody about writing it up so you have it protected. But I'm not as interested in that. They have to do that if it's a a procedure. I don't really worry about. But a an instrument, you want to protect your idea. Uh, but in terms of the procedure itself, I think that you should write it up, put it on paper, take it to the laboratory and try it out. I don't think you can do what we did back then too much. Conversely, I would tell you that when we're in the operating room and if you have an idea for uh, altering an existing procedure a little bit, you can do that. Nothing wrong with that. It's called innovative therapy. You can try to alter that procedure. Put in three stitches instead of two. You overlap this piece of fascia over that piece of fascia. You do a different kind of hernia repair. You do it once or twice. It seems to work. And then, if you're going to study it and write it up, you have to go to the IRB to study it. And we've done that with a number of new procedures. The peg tube is is a. Uh, it was an innovation. It was a. Important innovation because it said to the world that surgical procedures can be accomplished endoscopically. It gave an example of how the endoscope can be a surgical instrument and it was very important in my career. But I will say to you that I really believe, and I've said it to you before, that the endoscope is a wonderful tool and it has to be used as a vehicle to deliver surgery at a distance. And that young surgeons should think about how they can develop operations once they're there by means of the endoscope, be that in the lumen, be that through the lumen, or in the wall of the GI tract. And transluminal surgery, you can say that PEG was one of the first transluminal operations because we actually went across the lumen. But it's The idea of standing back, looking at the problem and saying, wow, can I approach this problem in a different way? Can I approach it from outside or inside or through the wall? How can I alter this situation and dream about it? Think about it. Don't think that everything's been thought of already. Otherwise, we'd still be with radical mastectomy for breast cancer. It was a wonderful innovation at the time. Its time has passed. And so one day peg tubes will be of the past. But right now, it's a good marker for endoscopic surgery.
1: Do you have any uh, other bits of advice you want to talk about with innovation?
2: Yeah, I think that anyone who tells you that there's nothing more to be innovated, that there's no, nothing new coming along the pipe, that this is it, is uh, somewhat to be avoided. I think that uh, this is so much fun. Innovation should be carefully thought out. It's always available. There's always something new to think about, always a new way to do something or a new thing to develop. And you, if, if you're interested in that area, if you love new stuff, it really will get your blood boiling and get you excited. But be, be prepared for disappointment. Not everything works. Uh, you know, the best thing to do is to listen to people who don't know anything about the procedure. When your medical students come in and start asking you questions, uh, that's a good person to listen to because they don't have the barriers uh, to their thought process that we do. And uh, I think that uh, you should always uh, take a chance. Now, you shouldn't take a chance with patients' lives, but you should take a chance on developing new ideas and new procedures and new instruments.
1: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ponsky, for joining me today and going through the history of your life-changing innovation. And for everyone listening, dominate the day.
0: Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review.